Welcome to episode 252 of the Cood Street Podcast, an occasional discussion about science fiction and fantasy. This week we are joined by award-winning historical and fantasy novelist Cecilia Holland to discuss her new book, to discuss history, science fiction, and more. And hello to you, Gary. And here I am sitting, actually this this week I'm sitting in Virginia, um, where within the next few days we're supposed to have a Northeast and possibly arcane uh, so so I envy first of all I envy you being in Perth when it's the beginning of summer and then Cecilia you're in that part of northern California which always seems to be gorgeous well we're having a lot of very good weather right now but we wish it wasn't we wish it was pouring rain but you know you can't have what you want but the weather's been stunning it's been you know the low 70s and breezy and clear and sunny and wow. nice but we always well, we wanted to like start I said, that it was point uh, that's good to know. But we wanted to start by congratulating you on, on, on your on Dragonheart, which is I guess technically your first fantasy novel and, and you know why I'm saying technically. Because you kinda sneaked yeah. a lot of fantasy into the Corbin Loosestrife Viking novels, didn't you? Yeah, well you know, uh, that, that was I think in service training or something. I really was trying to make something work, and I didn't have a clue how to do it. And so I did a lot of practicing in those six books. And uh, some of it came out okay, and some of it didn't. And I got uh, very frustrated by the end, and the last book is a mess. But uh, then I I got into doing Dragonheart because of uh, Gardner, who wanted me to write a dragon story. So I wrote this story. Um, that was in the book Dragons. And then um, David Hartwell started getting on me to turn it into a novel, and, and um, I had no clue how to do that either. But once uh. I started in on it, it began to um, really percolate. I mean, uh, uh, it was, uh, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, uh, basically the story originated with a story that I read when I was a kid. Yeah, called um, The Secret of the Spanish Cave, The Mystery of the Spanish Cave, a, a, a Jeffrey Household story about a kid who finds a, a, a dinosaur in an old Spanish cave. And I, I, the story, I read it when I was like 12. I loved it. And it stuck with me all this time. And then when I'm starting to do this dragon, I'm thinking, well, you know, I'll just resurrect this old story. And then it sort of took off from that. And I kind of blended in a little bit of... Uh, of um, uh, the uh, uh, Wagner opera, which is totally getting out of my mind now, uh, the, the Flying Dutchman, uh, oh. about the uh, the faithful unto death kind of thing, and the dedication to something. But mostly, it, it just yeah. started, you know, bubbling up. It seems like there's a bit of Scheherazade in it as well, because she, this is both true of the story and the. Um, the novel, and I don't think it's a spoiler to anybody to say that basically the story is the beginning of the novel with some significant alterations. But but she's, oh, yeah. in, in a nutshell, after a shipwreck, and we can give the backstory later, but after a shipwreck, she's stranded in this remote lagoon with the dragon, and this girl who, for some reason, cannot be under some kind of aphasia, she can't be understood by any of the people in her family or any people, but the dragon understands her. And and yeah. th- then she just turns to Scheherazade. She 
keeps herself alive by telling the dragon stories. Telling them stories, right, yeah. But, um, and that, that was um, clearer, actually, in the short story than it is in the novel, why she does that. But it works for well, me yeah. in, in the novel because the whole, it's the story inside a story inside a story story kind of thing. There's a lot of nested stuff in it, and there's a lot of, you know, ambivalence about actually what is a story and what isn't a story. And um, and I really, really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed, uh, you know, having different layers of the thing sort of uh, come up and down. The thing about it, though, is it's also, um, it, in my mind, kind of a little homage to uh, George Martin, because when I was thinking about what I had to do to make it into a novel, the th- I was thinking about what he did in Game of Thrones, which I really very much admire. And um, uh, I thought, well, you know, what he does is he's got this big crisis, this, this uh, you know, uh, cosmic event at the middle, and then all these, these uh, you know, royal people. So I said, well, I have to have a bunch of aristocratic people. There's got to be a cosmic conflict. So there's no more cosmic conflict than the sea and the land. And, uh, you know. and then, of course, you can do so much with that. So. Well, and I was talking to you a bit uh, in, in Europe earlier this summer. He's an admirer of, of your work as well, and I think he and Gardner had had you do, what, three or four stories for different anthologies? There was Dangerous Women, there was Warriors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were a couple so, okay. of them. Um, they were, yeah, the Dangerous Women is still paying off. I mean, that's the gift that keeps on giving from good old George. It's <laughs> uh, got a big story in it from the Fire and Ice series, and my little story just piggybacks along on that, you know. So it's a, I really, I really. Uh, but what he did in Game of Thrones, which I think is incredibly, he has such an enormous cast, and he doesn't try to uh, follow along in a, in a narrative line. He takes you along character by character, and that lets him build each little segment as almost a standalone. And keeps you going in spite of the fact that by this time you have no clue who any of these people are. And uh, I don't know how he's going to make it end. I really don't. He's made it so complicated, I don't see how he can find a way out. But, you know, the guy's amazing. Well, he's, he is. And, it, it, and, and it's it's already more complicated than the Wars of the Rose. Uh, and that was supposed to have been his model, oh, yeah. I gather. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're very... Um, but that's, that's why people love them, that and the fact that they all die all the time. But now he's bringing them back. I don't think that's fair. But, uh, no, but I know, if somebody dies, that. they should stay dead. Well, I mean, do you think there are rules you, you need to follow to make a fantasy work? I don't know. I should think so. Because especially fantasy, which is so, so easy, easily falls into being derivative. And being, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, something pretty rather than something interesting or profound. That uh, there must be, you know, obvious things you can't, you have to do. And yet, it's very hard to find any of these rules. Mm. And then, on the other hand, so many fantasies look like every other fantasy that clearly there are rules, but they are not the right ones. 
So <laughs> uh, it's like any other kind of writing, you know. The good thing about genre is that you, you get to know it well enough, you can start defeating it, and that's fun. Well, I mean, but um, I'm not sure fantasy as a genre um, is coherent. I well, don't know. Even if the genre is not coherent, though, don't you have to lay down a framework when you're telling a story like Dragonheart, so that it can actually well, have have shape and structure and work? If you don't lay down the boundaries, yeah, it has, whole thing there has to be some yeah, some kind of internal order. Yeah, there has to be the world has to work. Uh, Right. In a way where it's not necessarily predictable, but it is orderly, and where um, things have to, um, you know, you can't, it's, you can't bring in the god out of the machine. Uh, basically, it has to make sense in its own internal coherence. That's what uh, the Tolkien books do, and what Watership Down, which I think is maybe the best fantasy I've ever read, does, and um, that um, it becomes a world that that has as much coherence as the real world, you know. And so if some all of a sudden, you know, a, a gigantic hand reached down and plucked up, you know, Frodo and put him on top of the mountain, you would not like that, you know, because it breaks the rule. But I'm not sure what the rule... Yeah. Well, I can barely hear you now. One of the rules which I think is violated by the kind of formula fantasy that you're talking about is, um, and I, this is not my idea, I read this somewhere within the last couple of years, if you try to figure out the economics of a fantasy world, where do they get their products? Oh, God, yeah. where do they get, yeah. How does the agriculture system work? How does the market system work? And it's just not there. Uh, I was reading oh, a novel just no. a couple of days where a character goes to the cupboard and gets some food and puts it on the plates. I'm, I'm thinking, why? how did the food get in the cupboard? How did it get manufactured? Who made the plates? Who bought the plates? And most fantasy worlds, not most, but a lot of fantasy worlds seem to exist without any infrastructure, economic or political, at all. Yeah. I, yeah, there's a lot of it which just it's very, very attenuated. You know, it's very much reduced to um, a kind of single line. And, uh, the one Ouroboros is like that, you know, where it's reduced to yeah. one simple thing. And um, but, but, you know, that's a, first of all, it's really old. And second of all, the whole what carries that isn't the story, it's the language. So, you know, yeah. uh, I'm not sure that that, that, re- that I, I think that's true, though, that you can... People, when they build fantasies, don't expect them to have to work. And so they don't tell you where the the meat is coming from or anything. They don't have to. Maybe everybody in fantasy has a 3D printer like on the Enterprise. (laughs) It's all really secretly science fiction. (laughs) Oh, yes. But one of the things that I think is always fascinated a lot of writers in science fiction fantasy about about your work, Cecilia. You have a lot of followers out there. And I remember at a reader con, you packed the room. And some of this, I know, are people who remember reading Floating Worlds, what, almost... Oh, God. Am I right? Almost Back 40 years ago ages. now? It is 40, okay. yeah. It's 30 <laughs> oh, yeah, when dinosaurs walk the earth. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, it's regarded well, by a lot. Floating Worlds still is around. 
I got. I had yeah. a, somebody ask me about rights the other day, so you know, it's still huh. sort of hanging in there. And it's in the uh, Golanx masterpieces series, isn't it? Well, yeah. Or, it's, uh, what's his name? Uh, yeah, yeah. Malcolm um, Edwards. Orion, yeah. one of those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Malcolm Edwards. But he's always liked it. You know, he bought it originally. A lot of people, and I, I know we've had this conversation, and I know Charles Brown was one of them, wanted you to do more science fiction, but you didn't. Why not? Uh, well, I might. I've got an idea I've been working on off and on for about 20 years uh, that I might try to do next when <laughs> I'm done with what I'm doing now. But, um, you know, uh, who knows? I... Um, the the thing about science fiction for me is just historical fiction turned inside out. You know, it's just going to be like history, but uh, if you know ahead, not back. You know, uh-huh. I don't do anything really different. I didn't do anything really different in Dragonheart. It's a fantasy, but it's a lot of history in it. I mean, it's historical thinking in it. Well, I assume that, thing that you did about the infrastructure, for instance. I can't. I can't not deal with that because you know yeah. if you're going to deal with history that's the guts you know where are these why are these people where they are you know but if you re- if you that. research uh, you know, if you do a lot of research for a historical novel and you find out as much as you can so you can construct the space into which your story is going to fit how do you attempt to do that either looking forward to a, a yet to exist future that you're going to write history for or sideways to a fantastical history that, in a world that doesn't exist. Well, that's the trouble, see, because you don't want to be derivative, like I said. Yeah. But um, I, I don't know. I think what you do is the same thing you do with anything else. You start out with one idea, and then oh. that idea, you, you work through it, and it dissatisfies you, so you crumble it up and make another idea. And then you work on that a little bit, you got elements of the first idea, but new ideas are growing up, but that's not happy either, and you break that up. That's why it takes me years to do this. And uh, eventually, over a long period of time, you get into a, a, a set of ideas which are complicated enough that they defy, you know, abstraction. Mm-hmm. And that's what the thing is about the world, the real world, that makes it you know, real is that you can abstract from it, but when you abstract, you know you're lying. You know, the real thing is the real thing. And uh, when you get an idea about the world that you're you're dealing with, where it's, you can't abstract, oh, this is this, and this is, you know, here's the good guy, there's the bad guy, you know, then then you're dealing with something. You got something going on, but, yeah. It strikes me that when you talk about abstracting out of uh, out of an imagined world, that, that to some extent, if you if you use historical or let's just say some kind of mimetic fiction in the center, that um, that to some extent, fantasy on the one hand does abstract sort of the tonalities and the feeling and the emotions, but but not the detail. And maybe on the other hand, science fiction abstracts all the detail and the process. Um, but 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 not the feeling. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because I know a good friend of yours is Kim Stanley Robinson, who of all science fiction writers I can think of, 
is most fascinated with historical processes about how history works, how governments are formed, and and that that detail informs his work probably as much as any other science fiction writer I can think of. So he kind of thinks like a historical... I, I thought that was very shrewd, what you said, that uh, fantasy is um, the feeling without the detail and that science fiction is the detail without the feeling. That's very interesting. Um, I don't know if it's going to stop. I, Stan, Stan's thing <clears throat> is, to, uh, is to really uh, to make worlds. He really makes worlds. And um, he's, he's driven by his feelings of... Um, wanting to improve this world. And um, yeah. so he he really um, is constantly trying putting the world he makes up against the current world and, um, you know, saying, look, look, look at here. Look at, look why this doesn't work and why it does work. You know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, he's really a mechanic. I shouldn't say that. That doesn't sound nice. <laughs> it's a compliment. No, I really, you, I really, I, you know, I really, uh, you know, Stan is, you know, th- the great success. He's a, a guy who deserves all of his success and who has made it with, you know, just hard work and dedication, and, and he really is totally admirable. Mm. So, no, I can't well, uh, say anything bad about it. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that uh, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a mutual society. Why do you think? Why do you think so many science fiction readers seem to enjoy your historical fiction, most of which we should say doesn't have much fantastic ele- elements in it at all? And, and I had one thought about this when you were talking about George R. R. Martin earlier and the sort of shock that readers feel when he kills off characters left and right. And it yeah. occurred to me that's something, that, that's something he must have learned from history because when you're writing a historical oh, yeah. novel... You've got Eleanor of Aquitaine, The Secret Eleanor, is a recent novel. Or when you're writing about Henry yeah. II, uh, you have no choice about writing, about writing about dead people because they actually did die. Yeah. So killing yeah. off characters is something you've always done. And sometimes well, you have to do it. I think, I think that's true, yeah. Uh, history fascinates because it doesn't have to be make sense because it was real. Yeah. But I think <laughs> well, the reason science fiction, science fiction writers... Uh, like reading what I do is because of the technique. I think uh-huh. they, my techniques are much closer to science fiction techniques than the average, than say Philip Gregory's, uh-huh. or um, any other, or even Hilary Mantel. What I do is really much more like what SF writers do. Yeah. Well, to some extent. The, the way you read a historical novel like one of yours, and this has been, I know it's been remarked upon a lot, is a lot like going into an alien world in the science fiction world or fantasy, but more like science fiction in that there are virtually no info dumps. In other words, you're putting us in a world, whether it's you know, um, uh, 10th century Norway or, uh, or, or right, medieval yeah. France. And not telling us anything about it, so we have to build the world up as a reader the way we would have to build up a fantasy or science fiction world. Right. Yeah. You uh, you find out what's there by falling over it or into it or you know touching it and feeling it and smelling it. That's <laughs> what I mean about it. That that's much more of a 
Uh, I mean, modern science fiction, modern historical fiction, the way 95% of the people do it now, Mm -hmm. is reporting on something that happened in the past. But that isn't what I try to do. I try to go back and make it happen again and, you know, and try to figure out, try to be there and have it happen in, in turn. And, you know, not, not report on it, but play it. And it's, that's, like I say, that's much more like what, it's certainly much more like what Stan does mm. or, um, or Gurm, I mean, George Martin, or, um, how, let me think of somebody else. Have you read or Nalo, Nalo Hopkinson, just for oh. one, you know, really out there person. She does much oh. more like what I do than than I do what like what Phil the Gregory does. Yeah, that's interesting. You never oh. know what people wear in my my things. No, I don't I mean, do clothes. Is... <laughs> well, that's true. A lot of historical fiction seems to spend a lot of time on. Fabrics and well, hairstyle. Right, yeah. Look at the Hunger Games. One of the big features of the Hunger Games is the clothes. Yeah. That's true. And, um, you know, if, if you, you, people don't think of it that way, but if you think of, if you read them, that's all about clothes. Yeah. And dressing up. Well, actually, I suppose there is some of that in it, yeah. I'm a little curious. You've written science fiction and fantasy, and obviously primarily in your your career history. And you're talking about the credibility of sto- you know, historical stories because you know you can rely on historical events. You know, I mean, like they actually happen, so it doesn't matter if they're incredible; they're still true. Is there a greater burden on you when you're writing speculative fiction not to do that because the stories have to be? believable or plausible in a way and you can't sort of rely on the same kind of almost incredible things that have happened in history yeah i think that's totally true that's one of the things that got i got very dissatisfied with when i was doing all the corbin books was that the fantasy elements made it too easy but the history element really really stretched me really made me work and uh, the best in the last book which is uh, a big long mess, but has some great, I think, good, very good pieces in it. Mm. Canute the Great in the last book talks, takes over the book, and the mm. reason he takes over the book is because he's totally real. Yeah, you know, I had done a lot of work on him. I knew pretty much who he was. I'd, I'd, I'd uh, not from known facts. Cause very few facts are known, but I'd, I'd made up a good. Explanation for him, and he really takes over the end of the book. And I was, I loved going back to him because he was real, you know. And this other guy who's a, a huge sorcerer is, you know, too easy. So there you go. So, I mean, do you find Just that. Sort of shot myself in the foot. Is one of the things then that maybe uh, it, keeps you away from writing science fiction or fantasy is that it is that too easy? It's not gnarly enough, it's not challenging enough? I don't know. Maybe. Um, I don't know. I just, every time I, I, I find I do something, I'm trying to do something that's different from what I just did. And I'm, mm-hmm. I don't like repeating myself at all. So I, I will try to do something um, 
that's you often very consciously I try to do something exactly the opposite. Yeah. So um, I th- I don't know that I don't know that it, it's that clean, but certainly <clears throat> the thing that I love about history is how it it the whole. There's only one question, and the, the main question is, what the fuck? You know, I mean, I, it's just, ultimately, that's what you come up with. And when you, the more you read the, de- the, the original sources, the primary sources, and I just love these old, old chronicles and old letters and diaries and things, um, newspapers, if you get reason enough, um, the more you get down to the day-to-day stuff, the more totally confusing it gets. And that's when you know you're dealing with real life. When, you know, you can't reduce it to a neat little uh, <clears throat> abstraction, as I said. All of a sudden, you know, you've got, you know, um, people are scratching bug bites and, and uh, they're, they're eating leaves and the sun is coming up in the morning and look over there, is that smoke? And it's just a mess. And that's what life is. Yeah. You know, it isn't this neat thing that we see when we look backward at history. It isn't a report. So, but I've been, you know, I've been doing this for an awful long time, and I don't remember really why I do it or how I do it anymore. <laughs> well, I, I, I think you gave a clue when you were talking about a, a, a character um, who's, who's, who's got a, a certain amount of historical reality, but we don't know much about a character, because and you mentioned these chronicles, and I remember reading Geoffrey of Monmouth and the Bede, and you don't, you don't get what we would consider characterization in the modern sense out of those at all. But what you get are a no. lot of very figures, and you have to wonder, as you were just saying, how did this person get to be that? And so you're writing right. a kind of speculative fiction where you're trying to speculate on what set of circumstances led to whatever little we actually know about this figure. Right. How do you reconcile things? You know. Yeah. Um, the thing about Canute, which of uh, uh, Canute, you know, he's, this is a guy from the 11th century, early 11th century. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. He's not a a, 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 a panty. <coughs> excuse me, a panty waist. <coughs> At one point, in order to get something done, he allows somebody else to massacre 40 people, right in front of him. And um, and and I I just and then a couple of months later, when he's finally got um, Edmund Ironside, you know, pinned to the wall, he lets him go. Now, how do you reconcile this one guy, the cold-blooded murder of all these people, <coughs> with the guy who, when he's got his arch enemy in front of him, wounded and dying, says, "No, let's rule together." You know, I mean, there's hmm. just something going on in the sky, which is deeper than you would expect. Right. Yeah. So, so that was that was what pulled me along with him. And, but it's, it's but the more you like find it. out about people, the more they're totally contradictory. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, it personally me that science fiction has become more sophisticated uh, over the last half century or more that you are finding... Con- complex characters like that. Somehow, when you were talking about Canute, I was thinking about some of the characters that M. John Harrison has invented, who are completely despicable and yet capable of weirdly heroic acts at the same time. And you get fascinated by this contradiction, and that's one of the things, one of the things that pulls you along in, in the narrative. Um, so, 
I think that what I'm suggesting is that maybe science fiction has, and I think George R. R. Martin is an example of this, uh, has begun to learn a lot from historical fiction. Um, uh, part of the reason I'm thinking this is that earlier writers, I was doing a lecture, I was uh, taping some lectures and I was doing one today, about how people like Asimov and Bester would would get hold of Oswald Spengler or um, um, Toynbee and just use that as a schematic and write these novels, yeah. most of which didn't have terribly interesting, but they were just like illustrations of historical theories. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Harold Lamb was uh, somebody I loved when I was a kid, and uh, he clearly did that, you know. But he was he was the great uh, pulp historical fiction guy, and nobody right. remembers him anymore. I think it's too bad. I remember he would, reading. He would, I mean, this, this guy covered everything. He went everywhere from you know Stone Age all the way up to the Korean War. <laughs> I. I remember reading his two-volume history of the Crusades, and you're right; it was like reading Pulp Fiction. It was just a lot of fun to read, and I'm sure I got yeah. all the wrong ideas about the Crusades out of it. Oh, probably not. No, he was really pretty good about it. Oh, he but, was. Um, he was very sharp. I loved him. The first novel I ever wrote was when I was like 15. Was a, a, a novel about Hannibal, which I cribbed entirely from his book about Hannibal. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that kind of popular. It's interesting. That historical fiction, unlike science fiction, and to some extent, unlike fantasy, has kind of moved upstairs. It used to be um, that the the popular historical writers would be people like I don't know Samuel Schellabarger or um, right, Frank yeah. Europe, and they were they were always they always had pot bellers on the uh, pot boilers on the bestseller list. Uh, and now, yeah. historical fiction is Hillary Mantel. It's literary stuff. It's upscale. It, it wins Booker Awards and things, and science fiction doesn't. Well, sometimes it does. Most okay. historical fiction is, is pop boiler. Most historical fiction is, you know, thank God we're done with the Tudors, but like that, you know. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I, I read a lot of it. No, I'm not going to say that. Um, but um, it, it, the people, when they write, uh, historical fiction that does win awards, they pretend it isn't historical fiction, like Doctorow, which, although Doctorow's stuff was pretty much anti-historical fiction. It wasn't real. It was, um, I mean, if you think about Ragtime and, you know, Father and Father's Younger Brother and all that, that a deliberate attempt to make it not be real, but be yeah. abstract. And I thought that, uh, but anyway, but... Um, but science fiction has taken over. Fantasy and science fiction have taken over the entire universe. <laughs> and, I, you know, I think you guys should stop crabbing about it. <laughs> you know? I mean, uh, besides that, there is an award for every book published in science fiction <laughs> and fantasy. That seems like a fair mind. assessment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, um, so it's not like you guys get, people get, you know, totally, you know, ignored. Well, hang on, you can't say I, you guys. I, You're one of us now, surely. I know, yeah. I know, surely I am. Yes, right. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not anybody anymore. Oh, that's You not get true. to be so old, eventually you just pit up on the wall. But, but, uh, but you must feel that you are 
more in control of what you're doing. I mean, you've you've written thirty something novels, I think it is. Uh, you're, yeah. yeah. And maybe each one is different. Each one is the book you learn how to write in and of itself. But still, nonetheless, it's 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 something you've devoted your life to. It's something that you are actively engaged in. It must still be a rewarding thing to do. Oh, it's the only thing I do. I I, I was thinking about this today because I was going down the the freeway to visit a friend of mine who lives in another town. And as I'm going down the freeway, I'm looking around at all the you know the redwoods and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking how to describe everything. And everything that happens, I'm thinking in my head, how would I describe this? How would uh-huh. I use this? What about that character? Like everything, absolutely everything, is going through this. I mean, I, c- I could not stop doing it now because it would, there's nothing in there anymore except that. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, it's, uh, I don't know. I just suddenly, suddenly started realizing this and realizing, you know, maybe you're missing out on something here. You know, like actually looking at things. Or, on, or, or may- trying to turn everything into words. Or maybe alternately, you actually are looking at things and thinking about them, and uh, whereas a lot of people just let them slide past without giving them any consideration at all. Because, I mean, it, I it takes a, a certain amount of thought and understanding to actually interpret something from the, you know, the three-dimensional real world into words so that it can then be reinterpreted into somebody's mind when they read it. Yeah, I think it's probably true, but it's also a... It's it's uh, it's not I don't know it's it's a process you know it's like any other process when you devote yourself to the process you're leaving out something else and I'm wondering what it is I've left out for like eighty years or seventy years or however long it can't be eighty I'm not eighty no, yet no. I'm, I'm curious as well I mean I have every intention of getting there though <laughs> good yeah. good absolutely. Uh-huh. I'm curious. So, I mean, how do you, how do you start a book? I mean, obviously, Dragonheart, which is where we started talking about, uh, grew out of this request from George and Gardner for a, a story to go into their book, and then you're pursued to then turn it into a novel, which you've done. But I mean, how, yeah. how do you how do you normally start out? Is there a normal way you start out approaching a novel? Um. Well, yeah, I start out doing something, and then I don't like it, and I I throw it away, and then I go back and try to do it again. And, um, and I, just, I just keep running at it like the, the, the old thing from Monty Python, running at the brick wall with your bare hands. And just keep going and at it and hope that eventually it'll, it'll start cooperating. But it, there's, I, have a, I always have about five or six ideas that I'm tumbling. And I like them. I can't tell you why I like them, but I, I like the idea. But I can't figure out how to get into it. And then someday the first sentence comes to me, and I do that. Well, I mean, and I know that you've written what. I, well, I've seen the phrase use speculative nonfiction, uh, but I know you and I have talked about uh, something that will strike your imagination. And uh, what I'm thinking about now is. Is your nonfiction, I guess a nonfiction novella that was an Amazon single called Blood on the Tracks, which I'm convinced you must have oh, yeah. stolen from some country in Western song. Um, but it's, <laughs> you, you were looking at a, at, at a railroad strike in 1870. 
1957, and it seemed to me asking questions about it, which, which nobody had really asked before, and as the more you delve into it, the more this becomes an important moment in American history um, that nobody had really paid much attention to before. And now you, 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 you were recently working on something about the history of San Francisco, weren't you? Uh, the, the, the what? The history of San Francisco, the, the, the kind of the early political history of the San Francisco area. Oh, yeah, that... the Vigilante Wars, yeah. That was okay. the 1850s. Yeah. yeah, well, that you know, that stuff, the thing about that stuff is, uh, the thing about Blood on the Tracks was, first of all, it is a tremendous, uh, incredible event. Uh, 1877, the railroad strikes were unbelievable. They were nat- nationwide. They were incredible upheaval. And at the time, people knew something major had happened. But they're not discussed in history books. They're really, you don't know very much about them. You, when you read the newspapers of the time, is how you figure mm-hmm. out what happened. Because, you know, modern historians and modern people, they don't want to know that, you know, riots by working people over to, almost overthrew the country. They don't want to know it, you know. And and there's a lot of, well, nothing came of it anyway kind of thing, which is not true either. Uh, but it was an enormous event. But what happened was the, the legislature, the Pennsylvania legislature, had a hearing on the events that happened in Pittsburgh, where half of Pittsburgh was burnt down. And um, they brought in thousands of witnesses. And they they published this all this testimony in this wonderful book, which is like a thousand pages long and in tiny little type, and it's all these witnesses, and it's a blow by blow. You can literally do a minute to minute uh, record of what happened over those three days, and that's what made it the data. It's yeah. all about the data. And the same thing with the with the San Francisco thing. That's all about the data. Um, the uh, the uh, the vigilantes in San Francisco were uh, a really extraordinary event. They took over the city. They defied the government of California. They defied the federal government for about three months while they strung people up and ran people out of town. And you know, and they you know they were very. Um, it, it was a, a revolt. It was a rebellion. And, um, but it also is all the data. And all these people wrote things down because they were, of course, covering their butts. But one of the most important people and one of the most important observers was William Tecumseh Sherman, who was a banker in town at the time. He wasn't even in the Army. But he watched and he was in on, on interviews and discussions with people, and he left these wonderful letters and uh, what she described what was going on and uh, other people described and that that again is all about the data so uh, you, if you find a I, nice I piece you, of data boy let it rip. well that's but you know it's it's up to a writer it's up to you as a novelist or or a non-fiction writer and and the non-fiction like blood on the tracks has the shape of a novella it has a narrative it has characters in it. yeah oh yeah and well i'm all narrative. All, that's what i am uh, yeah yeah, but, but but nobody else is going to read a thousand pages of of small print testimony except you. And your job is to make it <laughs> make the mistake of that understandable to the rest of us. Right. Yes. Well, it was fun. Also, had no index. <laughs> oh. So I, I had to do an index as I went along, or I would never find anything again. 
was there a moment where you attempted to turn any of those into novels? Well, I've, I've, you know, um, it, none of them really um, novelized for me. Yeah, okay. But I, I, I can't, I can't explain what happens when I decide to do a novel, or what a novel decides to do me, or whatever it is that happens. Huh. It's something about the character. For instance, I have the, I have this science fiction book that I may do next. Uh, the last time I did it, I managed to get it up uh, to 29,000 words, and um, uh, I, I actually showed it to a couple of people, and everybody said, "Oh, you know, this could be interesting. This could be interesting." And I'm thinking that, well, well, that means it isn't interesting. <laughs> I, really, I didn't like the character. Yeah, I really didn't like the main character. You know, and you can't. I mean, the character was interesting, but not nice. Not nice is a bad word, but not. I, I didn't like the character, and I did like one of the other characters. So next, this next time I do it, I'm going to do it with the other character as the main character, and the character I don't like is, I don't know. So you, so you just found Another it to be too awesome to spend time with this character, and yeah, maybe... yeah, I'm not spending all that time with somebody I don't like. <laughs> well, that's because I mean, how long do you, you know? spend with the character when you when you're doing this? Oh God, forever, <laughs> forever, <laughs> forever. I mean, eons. The Dragon Book took me well over a year, and that's that was you know I did a separate draft to begin with that was totally sucked and which I totally threw out, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, started over from scratch. And um, uh, so it, it was a long, long slog. Well, there's also interestingly enough, well. Uh, I say interestingly enough because I don't think it was evident. There's a, I think, a distinct feminist subtext throughout the novel, which becomes pretty dramatic at the end, and that's something which you've also done. Uh, I know with the Eleanor, the Secret Eleanor, the Eleanor Aquitaine book was mostly about her and her sister, wasn't it? Um, yeah. So, so, so there's been a fairly consistent pattern of rediscovering. Uh, the role of, of women, and uh, I don't know how conscious that was in um, in Dragonheart, but the uh, disabled central character certainly learns to assert herself. Is that safe enough to say without becoming a spoiler? Yeah, no, I think that's true. She's um, I, she's the, the women at the heart of that book are at the heart of the book. Right. The, the, besides her, there's her mother and there's her sisters, and um, they're they're the ones who make things happen. The guys are, um, well, I don't know. The guys do things too, but the the three, the four women at the middle are um, are, are the people who make the book work. Right. Um, they're the, so, uh, and there's also a long stretch in the book uh, without. Without any fantasy elements at all, and this is something that's always fascinated me because um, one of the multiple award-winning fantasy writers now who we've had on our podcast uh, is Tom Holt, writing as K.J. Parker, and a good many of those stories and novels take place in some vaguely middle European country somewhere between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and there's no magic in them at all, and I, that that yeah. struck. I don't know if you're familiar with his, his his work, but it struck me that for a long stretch, you're building this world and this sort of wild, craggy outpost of the empire and the, the 
politics of the empire, but th there's not much magic going on during much of that at all, even though it's a convincing world that you built there. Well, <clears throat> it's, it's me. I just, you know, I'm going to slide into that other stuff. Um, I like things that make sense. You know, well, I, I realize that's a failing, <laughs> but uh, it's also why I like history. But also I have a, <clears throat> a tendency to fall into um, ordinary people doing things. And um, uh, I like that, but I don't, I'm not sure it makes good books. So I, I'm, I think you need some of it, but not all of it. Well, there, there's been a history of fantasy stories and, and some novels, or things that are called fantasy stories and novels that, uh, that, that do that, that can create a convincing world, convincing characters, and none of it is real, and yet none, none of it is supernatural either. And I think one of the things yeah. that these passages, the question that it raises to me is, does fantasy really need fantasy? Um, I mean, if you can create a convincing, <laughs> hypnotizing world and have interesting characters doing interesting things in it, um, does it does it need a sorcerer or a magician or a witch or a god or any of those things? I don't. I don't know. I'm, I. Um, I don't know. I think um, maybe that ultimately is what happens: is that that uh, the fantasy and the and the real world become aspects of each other, and then you don't need the witch, because the witch is, I don't know, it's a, you know, every book is different. Everybody does these things differently. And that's why we love them. That's why you want to read all these other people, because they do something that's different and, and um, unexpected. The one bad thing you, can, you can't do when you're writing a book is do something people expect. <laughs> Good advice. And and is that why a fantasy novel now? Because it's not what people expected after having done, you know, a long series of fan of historical novels, and then the Eleanor Aquitaine novel, and then some, and and then obviously the Kindle single histories and all this, and then another left turn to keep yourself fresh and interested. Well, I don't know. I'm doing. You don't know what I'm doing now, for instance. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, I, I'm not going to tell you either. I did not. I know. Uh, <laughs> I just published the Trotsky book, the Trotsky Kindle single. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah. So that that's that's there. But I uh, you know, I I get I do whatever whatever amuses me. I've been very lucky. I've been able to do that all my life. Um, and you've had a really distinguished career doing it. But the other topic which well, you mentioned. Been, yeah. Well, it's, it's it's something I remember. Uh, we we were together at a um, world fantasy convention once, and I, I don't think I actually introduced you to to John Courtney Grimwood, but he turned out to be your biggest fan. He was more excited about meeting you than anything else that happened that weekend. And I, I know, know that he uh, was, I say that. Um, yeah, it was kind of startling. He was, and he's—he's he's somebody else who's very interested in historical processes. Yeah, yeah, and he is. Um, and politics is something we haven't talked about, but it's another kind of thread that runs 
through a, through a lot of your work, I mean, you're talking about the Trotsky-Kendall single, Blood on the Tracks is obviously a politi- political book, the San Francisco book is, and you can't write about Eleanor of Aquitaine or, or Henry II without getting right. political. Uh, so, so that seems to be a continual strain in your work, which is also in the work of allied writers like Kim Stanley Robinson or John Courtney Grimwood yeah. or, uh, or, or George Martin, who is certainly sophisticated about the politics in the Game of Thrones series. Well, it's all about power. Well, yeah. You know, where does it come from? What do you do with it? How do you lose it? No. Yeah. Well, is that the... And George is nothing if not about power. Yeah. No, that's true. So is that the guiding principle behind... Uh, I, I think what we're getting at is identifying a kind of fiction which sort of cuts across the various genres of fantasy and science fiction and historical and realistic, but is but doesn't have a name. But politically sophisticated character-based fiction doesn't sound like a real hot genre. Uh, so we need yeah, to think well, about Yeah, well, let, yeah. Let's not give it a name either. Huh? <laughs> um, I, I know... I, I know you want to um, put everything right in the shelf, but there's times when you know. I don't. I I think I think everybody, all of us, all the people that you just mentioned, and anybody who's doing this with any seriousness, is trying to turn the world into something understandable. And the world that we see now, uh-huh. and and God knows. It doesn't make any sense, and it's overwhelming, and it's crazy. But we're all trying to run that through some kind of filter. But each of us is different, and each of Mm -hmm. our filters is a little bit different. And if you could only take all of them and see all of them and get everybody's point of view, maybe you would start getting on to what's going on, you know? But we can't do that. But in the meantime, we can read books. (laughs) And when somebody writes a novel, that's what they're doing. They're giving you the world. Well, one of the things that uh, we're getting close to the end, uh, one of the things that that makes me think of is the way we read books as well. And I know uh, when you were describing that wanting to give you the world, it it made me think of our friend Charles Brown, who read an mostly science was a huge fan of yours, but he went to talk to him, and, and we've all had conversations with him like this. He thought if he read enough and understood enough of it, he could figure out things about the world about him, and that that seemed to be a real hunger on his part. And it seemed to me explain a lot. Well, about yeah, it was his things. faith. Yeah, yeah. He, his faith was was books, and um, and he was an optimist at heart. Like, the the true science fiction writers are all optimists, like uh, Asimov and and, uh, and Stan. Yeah. Nobody is more optimistic than Stan Robinson. And, um, uh, you know, they look at the world and they, and, and they say, they see it's wonderful. You know, it's messed up, but it's wonderful. You, the historical fiction writers tend to be a little bit more pessimistic. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Largely may, maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, is there such a thing as optimistic historical fiction? Um. I don't know. I, I, I uh, certainly people like uh, uh, the guys in the fifties, Shelley Barger and uh, Edison Marshall. 
and uh, those guys, they were very optimistic because they thought they were writing from the point of view of the people who had figured it all out. You know, in the 50s, everybody knew what was happening. Everybody understood we were the good guys. You know, uh, history was all designed to make, make us, and, uh, you know, but it, it all started to come apart sometime in the 60s, probably uh, November 22nd, 1963. But uh, <clears throat> those, those people answer. were terribly optimistic. So anyway, uh, you said something about the <clears throat> the prisons in uh, in uh, Chicago, where you're going to be able to work in the prisons in Chicago. Oh, uh, that's something you know, we should about the prison. Well, we we should mention a little bit that in addition to uh, uh, the off and on and now on again, you've been teaching in. Uh, Pelican Bay, which is a maximum security state prison, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and teaching oh, yeah. writing to these people, which must be fascinating. Uh, it is fascinating. My first question, <clears throat> um, but how do you even get into the prison? Because when th th this is getting a little bit off topic, and we can talk after the podcast, but when I was dean and we were in the prisons, we couldn't go into a maximum security prison because it would be on lockdown every other week, and they wouldn't allow you in the prison to teach. Um, no, um, they don't. Lock, they had they locked down the end, the beginning of the odds, but they stopped doing that now. Now, now we're all going to uh, rehabilitate everybody. It's thing the thing goes from and all one end to the other like a pendulum. From yeah, punitive. You know, to one social. one time you want to kill them all, and the next time you want to save them all. And, Do you? But it, it's, it, it's fun. I love doing it. Do you, you pick up insights that are useful in your fiction? I mean, you, I, I know that if it's like what I remembered, you don't really ask um, any of the inmates what they're in for. Two rules that I was given. Don't no, ask them what, what for, And yeah. don't ask them if they actually did it. But you know you're dealing yeah. with violent people. They'll tell people. you, usually. Oh, so, yeah. So, yeah, they'll hear it, I suppose, if you're teaching writing. Does, does this inform your fiction in any way? Because you've been doing this for years now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, all the, uh, the 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 Templars in Jerusalem are all inmates because <laughs> when you you look at it, they're do, they're they're living exactly the way inmates do. They couldn't go anywhere, they couldn't mm -hmm. talk to women, they couldn't uh, um, you know play chess or keep dogs or do anything. They had to do exactly what they were told. If they were said charge into that those three hundred Saracens over there, they said okay and did it. And, um, and I just, you know, so you I used all, all, you know, all those guys were um, drawn on my inmates that year. That's and, Do any of the inmates read your stories or your fiction or your novels? Well, I offer them to them. I'm not sure they do. The no. Reading isn't their thing. Sometimes no, they read. Mostly what they want to do is learn how to say what they think. And mm -hmm. um, they, they're, they're, especially now, they're not educationally um, at any level. They're not, they can barely uh, write, some of them. Uh, but mm -hmm. you, you, you want them to, you know, start writing. And so I get them into the class and I say, start writing this. And they write and write and write. And they love it. They really, really get it. 
That's why it's fun. They get it in a way that people on the outside don't. They understand why it's important. And they understand mm-hmm. uh, why, uh, how gratifying it is. And it's one of the things I think that um, it has to inform your fiction from just knowing these people because so many writers, not only of historical fiction, but literary writers, tend to write articulate characters. And it strikes me a challenge would be to take somebody who is on the surface uh, tragically inarticulate and and find out what they're thinking and, and get into those processes. That that's That's got to be a challenge oh, yeah. for any writer. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the reason Elmore Leonard hung well, around also, the Detroit. It, it, you know. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I can barely hear you. Are you breaking up or am I just interrupting you? He's breaking no, no, up. No, I'm not saying. Oh, I am breaking up. You are I'm breaking sorry. up. Which, which, which yeah. may mean that we should probably begin to think about you know, winding this up because if, if if technology is going to desert us, maybe it's it's a good moment yeah. to sort of stop and sort of thank you for making the time to talk to us. Uh, to say that the death of Trotsky is online as a Kindle single. To say that Dragonheart is out in bookstores at the moment and is is strongly recommended by by us to to all of our listeners. And to say that we hope to see you somewhere sometime soon in the next. A next con- a convention somewhere or in you know, in San Francisco. Yes, definitely. Yes, you too, Gar. Okay, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Yes, yes we will. Thank you okay. very much, both okay. of you. Good to talk to you, both of you. And to you. And Gary, I will talk Thanks. to you okay. next week as always. Next week as always. Okay.